Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. All right, welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Jonathan Frakes. Jonathan is the director of Star Trek First Contact, Star Trek Insurrection, episodes of several Star Trek TV series, The Orville producer of The Librarians and Roswell, and an actor best known for his portrayal of Commander William T. Riker in Star Trek The Next Generation and its subsequent films. Jonathan, what's going on? What a pleasure to talk to you guys. The pleasure is all ours. Thanks for joining us. And, you know, I always start off with the first question being, where are you in the world right now? I want to guess L.A. I am sitting in a converted garage that my wife turned into a fabulous barn in uh, Woodland Hills, California, watching the squirrels eat. And have you always resided there, or did you move there to pursue writing, acting? How did that come about? I uh, am in Los Angeles against my better judgment. I'm from Pennsylvania. <laughs> I went to New York and lived in the city long enough to uh, get some work. And then I was shipped to L.A. I've been here on and off since 1980, and I still feel like a stranger in a strange land. I'm more <laughs> of the East Coast. We have a camp in Maine, which is where okay. our whole family feels his home. You like seasons, I imagine. As opposed I to, do indeed, yeah. It's a beautiful thing. So I briefly described who you are, what you've done. Would you mind telling us in your own words who you are now? What are you focusing on now? Are you a director? Are you a producer? Are you an actor? And what projects are you working on now? It's interesting. I have found that in the last couple of years, after spending an inordinate amount of energy trying to expand my horizon and not be pigeonholed as the guy who does the sci-fi shows, I got a little broke out and got some action adventure stuff and we did a lot of uh, leverage had a wonderful different tone and I did some of the uh, procedurals NCIS LA now my season looks like Discovery Star Trek Discovery the new wonderful Star Trek series the Picard show that Patrick is launching and the Orville which is some people's new Star Trek and I just finished um, The Gifted which is a sort of a X-Men Marvel origins show so cool i'm back in the uh in that, that world. world yeah yeah and when you say you're working on those are you both i'm, I'm working as yeah. a uh, as a director i oh I'm, cool for some reason for better or for worse have uh not been getting work as an actor and some of that is the double-edged sword that having been identified as commander Riker for so many years i mean obviously patrick's done very well and gone on to other things and shatter does a lot of other things but for a lot of us in that in the star trek universe there has been um, a certain typecasting that has right leonard nimoy used to say it's better to be typecast than not be cast at all true true probably true <laughs> but i i believe and i've been told you know there are certain shows and certain parts that i don't get or some of us don't get because we are recognized as x as Riker or troy or data so it's a uh, it's an interesting quandary so i'm feeling always feel very blessed and grateful to have learned another craft which i must say without too much conceit that I feel that I'm better at anyway than I ever was as an actor. So, and I enjoy it more. So directing has been my, my thing. And before we dive into the directing, based on what you just said, are you implying that you would love to play a role as an actor that's different and that that role just hasn't happened or are you as a ship sailed, so to speak, and you're kind of more focused on directing? Oh no, I'm, um, I, I'm available every time <laughs> to work as an actor. Amazing. I just did an interesting little thing on a Netflix, a German Netflix show. But it was a, 
essentially playing Jonathan Frakes that hired me because of the success of a show called Beyond Belief, which in German is called The X Factor. And it has an unexplained popularity there. So the character that I played in this show was Jonathan Frakes and the German producer-director saying, please do it with more gravitas. And it was uh, explaining the dark web. It was bizarre, absurd, wonderful to be doing something different. Is it strange to be directed by a director now that you're a director? No. I loved the whole process. Love it. It's fun to watch other directors work and uh, hear them express themselves and how they get from you what they want, especially if they speak another language. (laughs) So let's talk directing. We usually frame our episodes around specific themes uh, for yours. Are you cool to kind of school us on that? Yeah, that's fine. Amazing. So the first one is a very broad question. For those listening who don't know, what does it mean to be a director? Because I'm sure for those listening, there's sometimes some confusion between what a producer does, what a director does, what a writer does. On episodic TV, which is what I do the most of since I'm in movie jail, you go in to a show, let's say Discovery, the new Star Trek on CBS, All Access, and Netflix. And you're hired at the beginning of the year to do episode two, episode nine. So your first bit of homework is to familiarize yourself with the show, hopefully watch all of the episodes that preceded to meet if you can with the creative showrunner or writers of different episodes. The producing director will inform you on what the style is, which you guys, if you haven't figured it out already. And then you go to work to prep, which is the most important part of directing for television. Let's say on that show, we have 10 days of prep and 10 days to shoot. Hopefully, and often, this is not the case. Hopefully, you'll show up to work and there's a script. Sometimes there's an outline. Sometimes there's part of a script. Sometimes there's one act and then story beats. So different levels of finality are on your desk when you arrive. The primary objective, from my point of view, is to deliver the best version of X ever. <laughs> I want to make the best episode of this show that's ever been done. That's I enter every job that way. Sometimes you're supported in that endeavor by having a fabulous script. Sometimes you're making the best of a stinker, you know? Right. So, I mean, I don't know how much into the weeds we're going to get, but preparation and the prep time is what allows you to decide which parts of the story you want to spend more time on. Uh, You do the casting, you pick locations, you work with the costume designer, the production designer on any new sets. You meet, and hopefully on some shows, you have the privilege of sharing the prep time with this cinematographer who's actually going to shoot your show. On the Discovery, for instance, they have rotating, or not rotating, they have two DPs so that you can prep with the DP who you will shoot with. And that is invaluable. Right. You, you can create the uh, transitions you want to create together. You walk the sets together. You pick the location together. You decide camera. And it's such a wonderful way to, uh, to prepare is actually the extension of your of your vision and going to you know, carrying out what you want to do. That's not always the case. So let's use two other examples. I used to do a show called Castle. And on Castle, showed up to work and the producing director, whose name was Rob Bowman, who ironically was one of our favorites on Star Trek Next Generation, he would say, don't waste our time with any multi-stop dolly moves. That means when you stage a scene that you have a cunning plan of how you're going to bring people in off the elevator and you're going to cross it through here with some wonderful foreground and you're going to land them in position and you're going to get some of the coverage. Maybe you'll circle around them and catch the reaction. You're creating elegant shots. 
we all, you know, cinematic shots. They said, don't waste our time with it. We're not going to use it. The most important thing on this show or the, our look is that you get three sizes. You get a wide shot, you get a medium close-up, tight close-up, and an extreme close-up, especially with the two leads. So knowing that going in, you don't waste your time creating multi-stop. Fast forward to another show called uh, Falling Skies, which I used to do for TNT, which is sort of post-apocalyptic sci-fi. And it was produced, uh, Spielberg produced it, Noah Wiley was the star, but very dark, very gritty. And the marching orders there when you showed up to work in the morning or at, at prep was, we want to make this look like handheld war documentary footage. So you're encouraged to stay in shots as long as you can. You bring somebody in. You don't have to cover everybody's dialogue. You find other people reacting to what they say. You follow them around over their shoulder. You come back around. You find them on the face. You look at profiles. So you would essentially stay in and design long, interesting handheld shots that they encourage you to do. So when one is watching a television, or when, when it's bonking through the dial with their remote, they recognize their show because it looks a certain way. So your responsibility as a director on episodic television, I feel, is to deliver the best version of their show in the style that they have chosen. It doesn't mean that you can't add your own style. They want the audience to recognize their show when they look at it. There's some shows that don't allow you to use handheld. There's some shows that encourage you to do everything handheld. It's, a, it's an interesting puzzle. Sorry about the long-winded answer. <laughs> no, that's great. So if you were to make the best episode of their show, but it just so happened to maybe use some long takes instead of, you know, just the classic setup, would that be a fail? Would there be backlash no, there? No, not, not, not lately. For instance, The Gifted, which I mentioned, Robbie Duncan McNeil from Voyager is a producing director, and he sits down with you and says, bring all the toys. And his, his line is to shoot the thrill. And I had just worked with uh, the DP who loved the 8mm lens, which is almost fisheye. So I said, you know what, let's, let's use a little bit of the 8. So they have to order it from the, from the camera to the house, and they bring it in, and people say, oh, what a cool look. So, you know, you steal stuff from other people. Right. And on Discovery, Olaf Sunday, who's the producing director, also believes that we are free to do and express ourselves visually as exciting a way as possible. So the restrictions that I mentioned from Castle and Falling Skies are I don't experience on uh, my current shows, where I'm encouraged to, to do whatever, you know, they want it to be cinematic. I mean, the thing about the new Star Treks on uh, Discovery are they're very much in the JJ world of... Uh, very cinematic, a lot of moving camera, a lot of crane work. So it's frankly more fun to shoot sitting on the dolly and looking at a close-up that doesn't move. Tell us about, obviously, there's the responsibility of working with actors on a set. What is that experience like? And is it informed by your own experience as an actor? I think one of the advantages that I have is that I speak actor and I know what it feels like. I really know what it feels like, and I know how insecure we can feel. I know how obsessive we can feel. I know how childish and childlike we can be. I know how vulnerable and raw it can be to be the guy out there alone trying to express how he feels with someone else's words. So, and I'm, you know, I'm married to an actor, and I used to be an actor. I'm, I kiddingly refer to myself as a recovering actor, but I have, it's, it's in your DNA. I have been described as an actor's director because I understand the pain <laughs> and sorrow inherent in that job. 
And my favorite part of the job is the uh, directing, the acting, if you will, and enjoying the acting and making sure that I capture moments that the actors have uh, created for us. So it is, uh, especially with actors at the level of uh, some of the stars of these shows who, when you do give them a note, uh, Sinequa, who comes to mind, and Patrick and Noah Wiley, who I mentioned, when you give them, and uh, Anthony Rapp and Doug Jones, you give them a note and they take the note and you can just, you can watch them fine tune it. It's like a, you know, a, a musician, like a fine violin player. And they don't over dramatize the note. They just tune the instrument ever so slightly and it affects it in an elegant, stylish, creative, surprising way. And that's, that's the real treat of a day's work. And, uh, they surprise you. You share something that you've seen with them. They say, thank you. Well, let me try that. You know, the process is, the process is the best. When you work with an actor or even the crew, given that you've also acted, you have your own kind of brand, does your previous experience affect the way the crew takes you seriously? Are they celebrity kind of reactions to when you're trying to direct? Does it affect things? Does it get in the way? Um, that's a good question. I think uh, specifically on the new Star Trek, there's a certain cachet that comes from having been on the show that, you know, we have, with Next Generation, we had a lot of success. And the cast on Discovery reminds me a lot of of our cast and the way they behave, the way they treat each other, the way they work. And there's an inherent curiosity about what, what are we getting ourselves into? I didn't know when I started that being on Star Trek would be what it, the gift that it's been, you know, Star Trek is part of the popular culture. So the latest iteration of Star Trek, this Discovery, and then the Picard show, and then the Michelle Yeoh show, this animated show, these are all new parts of this bigger animal. And um, the Star Trek family enlarges and as they uh, are welcome to the family. You know, unfortunately, unfortunately, I'm one of the old guys now, right? So that they're curious about the conventions. They're curious about... The, uh, what it was like with Roddenberry there. And that, that curiosity is a kind of a privilege to share the answers to those questions. Let's talk about the script. You mentioned that sometimes when you show up for the gig, the script is not fully formed, or sometimes it is. How do you adapt or work on that in the moment? Are you working with the screenwriter on set? Are you kind of just winging it? How do you develop that script in the moment? Generally, you have a writer if not the guy who, or woman who wrote the script, someone representing them, joining you the last part of preparation and then with you on the set to answer questions that the actors or producers or designers may have about the story. One of the most important meetings that takes place during prep time on a television show is what they call the tone meeting, which I'm sure you guys have talked about with other writers. And in that meeting, the writer or the showrunner, both the director and the first AD, the cinematographer, are on a conference call or in a room and literally go through beat by beat in the script your intentions or their intentions or what the uh, overview of that of the act is or the overview of the show. I mean, all of the above. But the uh, what we hope to achieve, how we hope to tell the story, what the uh, happening to the relationships. And sometimes it's important to verbalize even the most obvious. When this guy comes in, he's suspicious of him because we know that he's shot his wife. And the writer may say, yeah, that's exactly right. Or 
no, he doesn't know that yet. Or no, we don't, you know. So there are things that may seem obvious to you that if you don't mention them and you end up on the set having decided to do it a certain way, the actor may not understand that or the writer may object to that and you'll end up wasting time, valuable, precious time with a hundred people sitting around and you're trying to figure out what the fuck we're doing. And that's, again, the importance of uh, prep is to work out these kinks, get your plan together, and that make sure that plan is, in fact, the vision of the writer as well. When you're hired to direct for a TV series, is it a one-off? Are there a specific number of episodes? And what is the reasoning behind the variety of directors on a TV show? Why don't they just hire the same director for all of the episodes? Um, question. I often ask myself. The, uh, <laughs> part of it's time because you do you need the time to prep. So during the ten days that you're prepping Discovery, another director is shooting, and you can't do gotcha. both. And you have ten days to shoot, and then the editor gets the show for a few days, and then you have four or five days to edit. So your uh, your time on an episode is not just the time on the floor directing it; it's the time before and the time in post production. A good way to judge how directors do is when you look at your IMDb page, you see if they've done multiple episodes of a show. Because generally when you get a new show, they'll hire you for one. And that's sort of your, your test to see how you did their show. And then they'll ask you back. That's the vote of confidence that you're looking for. And hopefully in the following season, you get a couple of them. So you've directed both Star Trek movies and Star Trek TV episodes, what's the difference from a directorial standpoint? It's really simple. I get asked that question. It is, you have more time and you have more money and you can do bigger things. And I always use this example. When I first got first contact, when I was lucky enough to be given that fabulous script to direct as my first film, you have a lot of time to prep and they've hired big movie guys to head all of the departments. So I was in a meeting with, um, Terry Frizzi, who's a special effects guy who's done 50 movies roughly. And in First Contact, the Borg bomb the village that uh, James Cromwell and Alfred are in. And this village is being built up in the Angeles Crest Forest and it was spectacular. The sets were brilliant. So I said to Terry, I said, so when this bombing happens, are we going to put some M80s here in the, in the, in the gardens and I'd blow up dirt? So he looked at me like, Oh, my silly little friend. No, we're going to blow up the whole fucking city. And it's back. That's the difference between making a movie and making a TV show. Wow. Tell us about a day in the life. Is there one day on a set that calls out to you if you had to think about one that's the most memorable? One of my favorite days I go back to, and it goes back to something I said earlier in this interview, in First Contact, which was such an exciting adventure for me. There's a great scene between Alfred Woodard and Patrick Stewart where they are in the ready room and they're arguing about the future and his point of view versus hers. She's upset that she's been exposed to this strange, wild future. And the two of them, and the writing's gorgeous. This is Brandon Braga, Ron Moore. And he breaks open the cabinet that has ships in it and she yells at him about his ships. And it's two actors in a big room. It was like a boxing match a fabulous boxing match. And I sat under the camera and I watched these two masters go at it. And to this day, it's one of my favorite directing memories is that to be in the room with the creative juices from two world-class actors with great, great lines to deliver. I just killing it, just crushing it. 
you're, you know, you're the guy closest to it and you're hoping that the cameras are turned on and that's, you know, and you're right there and you can feel it. You can feel it when it's that excited. Are you the referee or the manager in that scenario? I am the uh, manager. <laughs> <laughs> as far as uh, when the episode wraps, tell us about post-production process. Do you have Final Cut? Is it the showrunner who has that? The showrunner gets Final Cut. And often on a studio show, someone at uh, ABC or CBS or Fox will have a cut or the rights to a Final Cut. The director on television never gets Final Cut. Very few movie directors get Final Cut. So having said that, I've learned that, I mean, there's so much you can do in editing and it's obvious. And the idea that they were not going to give the editing award out on the Oscars was just insanity. <laughs> oh, yeah. I heard about that. <laughs> oh, that was crazy. Yeah. yeah. The editing awards. Cinematography well, in cinematography, awards, yeah. Crazy. Did you tweet about it? I, there was a huge, uh, you know. Yeah, I retweeted Felicia Day's <laughs> outrage. Wow. And she was it's great nuts. about it. She was just great about it. Um, in the editing process, you have a couple of responsibilities. One is to make the show somewhere close to the delivered length, because generally, have too much footage and the other is to turn in your again as i said earlier the best version or what i believe is the best version of the show and on the, a lot of these shows there are um lots of visual effects lots of exteriors like ship shots that you have that will not be done at this point so you have a uh, animatic version of them or a sketch version of them or sometimes just a simple card explaining that uh, the orville circles the planet so you have to judge with the best of your ability how long that shot should be, what that shot might look like when it's finished, how exciting will it be to come in from that shot, where should you come in from. So mixing visual effects with the footage that's actually done is a big part of it. Choosing the all-important spotting of when the music comes in and goes out, what the music needs to sound like, uh, how to heighten the use of sound, what parts of the dialogue either need to be changed or tweaked with a loop or an ADR line or have not been understandable or the tension is not what it might be to make some adjustments there. And then what I'm really trying to get to is that after you're in the room with the editor and after you and the editor have done work that you believe is giving the show its best opportunity to shine, you really have to release it. And that's the hard part is that you believe you've given the best show and then you turn that over to showrunner and sometimes the showrunner is thrilled and uh does very little tweaking and sometimes the showrunner feels like oh no so i gotta reopen all these so you take a you know you squint at the episode when it airs and see how much it resembles the one that you turned in but it's learning to release that baby into the world that is uh, one of the hard parts of being an episodic director hey everyone We just wanted to take a quick second to thank you, our listeners, for your continued support. The Writer Experience Podcast has been self-funded from the beginning. So whether you're an aspiring writer who has taken inspiration from the podcast or just enjoy hearing from professional writers, please donate to our Patreon at patreon.com slash writer experience. You can also go to our website, writerexperience.com, and click the Patreon button. Thank you again. We really appreciate your support. And now... Back to the show. How do you get the next gig? Is that through an agent? Like, how do you stay proactive about that? Generally, the next gig, especially at this point in my career, I'm 
comes from people I've worked for and with. And um, there's a lot to be said for having respect for the amount of budget and time that you have, especially on a show that's you know making 10 or 12 or 20 episodes a year. You can't be frivolous with the company's time and money. And that's why, again, it goes all the way back to the beginning of this conversation about the importance of prep. It is in prep where you decide with your first AD and your cinematographer. We have 60 scenes to do. Three or four of these scenes are pivotal. So let's allow more time in your 12-hour, 14-hour day for these scenes. And we plan it that way so that when we get in those scenes and we know that we have, we want to do something either more complicated with the camera or that it's uh, some heavy lifting for the acting, we hopefully will have allowed time. And some scenes you plan as a wonder. You know, walk and talk with the guys. Two people are talking and they're coming at you and you either follow them, you shoot them, you know, so you can get that. Once you have that set up, you shoot it until you get it right and then you can move on. So that should take less time. So on time, on budget, and a creative, clear version of their episode is how you get the next gig. I don't want to make a first contact reference here, but are you cool with us traveling back in time to your beginning of your career? Absolutely. So where did this all start? Sometimes people start with the beginning first, but I kind of like talking about it now that we kind of see where you're at. Did you always want to be in the entertainment industry? Were you an actor first? Like, tell us, like, how did you start? That's a good time to go to this. I was um, I did a little acting in high school, but I went to college, at, uh, and my father was a movie buff, and he taught English and contemporary American literature, and taught a little film course, and so he always made me sit down and watch movies. But I went to college at Penn State the intention of being a psychiatrist. I was a psych major. While I was there, I signed up to usher at the professional theater that was there in the summer this company had been there so I could get into the place for free. I was in the hallway signing onto this list so that I could be an usher and therefore see the theater of the place for free. And the director comes down and says, oh, you're a tall guy. Would you like to be in this production of Arthur Coppett's The Indians? What do you mean? He said, no, we need, you know, you've got to sit on the stage and you play the drum and just come to rehearsal. So I went to rehearsal and I watched this company of actors from New York on this wonderful carpet play. And then most of them were from New York or actors theater Louisville or the arena stage in Washington. These were, you know, actors who had, were making a living doing this craft. And it turned my head in such a way that I became a theater manager and then left Penn State with the most useless degree you could ever have, which is called a BFA in theater arts with a focus on acting. Now, there's a degree you cannot get a job with. <laughs> I went to New York, moved furniture, worked as the worst waiter in the history of the city, and then was lucky enough to get cast uh, so-called The Doctors, which shot at 30 Rock. And then I got a small part in a Broadway show called Shenandoah that starred John Cullen. So a couple of years after I got out of Penn State, I thought I had hit the acting trifecta. I was living in New York. I had a daytime job in a soap, and I had a nighttime job on Broadway, and I was you know, in high cotton. Fast forward to LA and uh, I was, you know, I guess killed off in the soap and was sent out by my agent to LA and I did a number, a lot of guest spots for the villain of the week and then Star Trek came along. And while I was in the first season or so of Star Trek, it dawned on me that uh, there's a lot of sitting around. I'd done a little directing in college and so I watched the set and it was very clear at this point that the person who was most involved was the director, involved in every shot had creative control of the room. So it appealed to me. And I started the shadow and uh, continued the shadow and continued to 
beg for an episode. Rick Berman, who was the keeper of all things Star Trek at that point, watched me and encouraged me and persevered. My wonderful wife, Jeannie Francis, used to say, I'd say, I don't, I'm not going to go in today because I'm not shooting it. She said, that's all they need to do is see that you've lost interest. So I get in my car and drive to Paramount on my days off. And I spent 300 hours in the editing room with these editors who also wanted to direct but were generous enough to share with me what they needed. And eventually I was invited into some of the pre-production meetings and the casting and then the post-production, the cutting and the spot, music spotting. And it became clear that this was a, a great gig. So three years later, I was blessed. This is another thing about episodic TV. It's really the luck of the draw because you're not, you're rarely assigned a show to fit your strengths or weaknesses. You're assigned a show that fits in the schedule that's when you do it. So the first thing I got to direct was a data episode called The Offspring. Data, the character on Star Trek, builds a daughter named Lal in his own image. And it was a wonderful story written as a spec script by a writer named Renee Echeverria, who went on to be a cruising director on other shows, including Deep Space Nine and Castle. And still, you know, this was his first script. This was my first episode to direct. It was Brent was the star of it. Data's awesome. So a lot of the, and I had the support of the, of the crew because they knew that I'd been dying to get this episode. So all the elements, came together and my first episode was a winner because I had a good script and had good actors and it could have gone the other direction as I said earlier you know especially in those days we did 26 episodes so you didn't hit 26 home runs a year right (laughs) and uh, the luck of the draw in terms of the quality of the script has a big effect on uh, how your early direction career goes Looking back at your career now, is there one piece of advice that you would pass along to aspiring, whether they be writers or actors or directors? Honor the script, prepare, make sure you understand the intention of the writer, even though you may believe that you understand it, ask so that you don't misunderstand or don't miss some, something that the writer feels obvious. Listen to your heart when uh, you're watching a scene, and if you feel something, even if you don't understand intellectually why you didn't like it, don't be afraid to do another take. If you think, oh, maybe I have it, maybe you don't. And don't direct. Don't give actors notes if you don't have notes to give them just because you feel like you need to say something to them. You can be always be encouraging, but never over-direct. Never feel that, oh, I've got to show them that I'm directing by changing something that is not broken. And um, wear comfortable shoes. I meditate, <laughs> I meditate at uh, lunch so that I come back energized after everyone's going into a meat coma about two or three hours after lunch. Um, yeah, those are a few things that I pass along. I love it. The next phase of the show we call a series of seemingly random questions. Are you down for some seemingly random questions? I certainly am. Is this the lightning round? This is the lightning round. The first question. In your Twitter bio, you state that you're a recovering actor. I know you briefly mentioned this, but what does that particularly mean? That means that uh, I don't have as much work as an actor as I used to, and that I'm uh, grateful to be director. (laughs) The second seemingly random question. You're also a father and a husband. How does family tie into your writing from a practical perspective, whether that's, you know, the time you spend on set to themes, like thematically, do you feel uh, compelled to tell familial stories? That's a great question. You did say writing, Freudian slip. Part of the 
experience these days of directing takes you out of town. So it takes you away from your family. So you're grateful for the family that you join, which is the company of the, whatever show you're on. But I'm married to a wonderful actress named Jeannie Francis, and we have two fabulous kids who somehow have survived both of us being in this business. So my family is the best part of me. And, uh, hopefully, it'll always be the case. You, on Star Trek, worked with other cast members who also, I believe, directed. Did you learn from them? Yeah, uh, LeVar became a wonderful director. He's actually shooting NCIS New Orleans as, as we speak. Patrick directed and didn't care for it quite as much as LeVar and I did. Uh, Robbie Duncan McNeil, I go to work for, who directed Voyager. Roxanne Dawson's a fabulous director who came out of Voyager. There are certain actors who take to it and like it because they like the experience of working with all different kinds of people. And there are other actors who do it because they can or because they put it in their contract. Then they realize that maybe this isn't for me. And I found when I was working as an actor, I would look to LeVar if he was around or to Patrick and get a sort of a litmus test reaction to what I was doing as an actor and, and trust their uh, take on it. It was uh, very helpful to have people whose opinions you respect working as directors and actors and working with them. Next question. If you could have fast food with any writer, living or dead, which uh, food would you choose and which writer and why? Uh, uh, oh, that's good. I would have... Uh, I would have fried shrimp with the donut like. There it is. <laughs> Next question. You mentioned that when you were first uh, working on Star Trek, the format, the number of episodes were like 26 episodes at that time. Obviously, Seems ridiculous now. <laughs> right? Seems, it's yeah. insane. It's crazy. Things these days are much different. All episodes are being released at the same time sometimes, or many times now. How has that affected your directing? What are your thoughts on all this? craziness that's happened i think the quality of television is improving every day and i well i mean it's an old truth that what's happening now tv has taken the place of uh film used to be a snobbery among actors directors writers that oh i don't i don't do television not everybody does television and is grateful for it and the quality of tv is mind-blowing i'm not sure what you're binging i just finished uh the kaminsky method which made me roar which is wonderful. And I watch a show called Happy Valley, which I think is spectacular. I just finished Russian Doll. Where were all these shows? Right. I think the lack of restriction on the uh, on the writers, by virtue of being on a streaming network that you can use language and uh, physicality that you couldn't with the standards and practices of network television, I think that's opened up a lot of doors. Was it as simple as Let's tell one arc across many episodes instead of just one, or do you think that's a big part of it? Well, that's a good question. Um, that's a really good question. I'm thinking specifically of the two shows that I'm intimately involved with, Discovery and Orville. Orville does individual episodes the way we did on Next Gen, and Discovery does a season-long arc in which the story is spread out over 10 episodes. I'm not sure if one is better or worse than the other. Black Mirror is a series of episodes and thrones obviously is a, is a is a long story i think it's a matter of taste i don't know that to go back to earlier parts of this conversation in prep during your preparation you do need to familiarize yourself with the show 
but if you're doing a procedural or a show that has standalone episodes, the history of the uh, what's going on in the story before you and coming after you is not quite as doesn't affect your work quite as intensely. That makes sense. Definitely. Next question: What is one thing about your life or career that no one knows? Very few people know that I played trombone and called fish. Oh wow! I did not know. Right. I didn't play it well. <laughs> and the story goes like this: I was uh, living next door to a producer named Paul Fox, who used to produce REM and Jacob Dylan and Bjork and Fish. And the guys from the band were huge truckers, which drove them to, you know, invite me into the studio to play trombone on their album called Hoist. So I went to the studio, as you can imagine, incredibly excited, and they put the charts in front of me. And the charts were, let's say, far beyond my ability as a trombone player to play with any kind of expertise. So I blurted out a few, you know, funky attempts at playing this incredibly complicated trombone part. And it was clear that it was great for them to have asked me, but I was not the guy for this job. So we had a nice few hours together. And then they hired uh, the trombone player from Tower of Power, who's a genius. And he played those parts. But the outtakes became a shortcut on Hoist called Riker's Mailbox. And it was called Riker's <laughs> Mailbox because I lived up on Lookout Mountain and Paul was next door. My mailbox was old, looked like a cow, you know, black and white spotted with like a cow's head. You've seen those kind of mailboxes. That some look like fish, right? ironically. But this cow mailbox had been hit by so many cars that people tried to park. So it was dented and quite a, a character-driven mailbox. So, and that was how you recognized where the house was. So Riker's Mailbox was the name of the cut. The Hoist album was released and went gold or platinum. And Paul Fox, my dear friend, gave me a gold record. So I have a gold record on my wall. So there. <laughs> there it is. How about that story? We did not know that. We did not see that there one coming. There we go. Wow. Should have added that to the bio in the beginning. You were right. Well, um, I was holding out. So I was holding <laughs> out. Like, I knew you'd have that question. We now. needed a payoff. There we go. <laughs> Only a couple more How questions. We did pretty damn good. I do have one more question. These days, Star Wars is enormous. Well, there's one more movie coming out this year. There's multiple series being planned and all that. And it's just like a crazy thing. Where does Star Trek fall compared to that? Is Star Trek going to move into that kind of world? Um, my understanding is that Alex Kurtzman and Secret Hideout are creating a Star Trek oeuvre that will hopefully allow fans of Trek to have something fresh to see all the time. That's why Discovery, now that it's a hit, will continue. And they've announced uh, Sir Patrick's show, which is not titled this story about the card. That will air after Discovery. And they've announced developing a show for Michelle Yeoh. Which is wonderful. You know who Michelle Yeoh is? Yeah. From, uh, yeah. So Empress Georgia, who was a character on Discovery, will have her own stories. Uh, we've hired um, the guy from Rick and Morty, uh, Monaghan, I think, to write a uh, animated show called Lower Decks, which is I've seen parts of, which is hysterical. So we've got one, two, three, four. They've just done a Nickelodeon connection for a little kid's Star Trek. That's five. So there's a world being created by Kurtzman and his team that will hopefully continue for many years and provide entertainment and obviously conversation about Star Trek for decades in a way that we had in the 
80s and 90s when Paramount thought that the show was doing so well that they went to the well over again. They went to Next Generation, then they went to Voyager, then they went to Deep Space Nine, then they went to Enterprise, and they did fine. But I felt maybe they spread it too thin. Second to last question. Are you contacted a lot to do podcasts? More and more and more. What makes you want to do them? Like, I'm just curious. What goes through your mind? You're like, ah, another podcast? Or you're like, ah, cool, I could talk about writing or directing. Well, it's funny because my my agent who you guys contacted, my acting agent, Elisa, said, this looks like something you you would be interested in because you like to talk about yourself. (laughs) (laughs) There is that element. There is that element. I think think that's the truth. I'm so very proud. I'm very proud of what I'm doing, and I'm very proud of uh, being part of this next wave of... uh, Star Trek. I feel very privileged, and uh, I see it as part of uh, promoting that and promoting myself as well. Amazing. So you already told us what's on the horizon. Did you want to do any last shout-outs, plugs, your social media handles, anything, any last words, so to speak? I only do Twitter, Jonathan S. Frakes. I've gotten rid of Facebook, which I was never really heavily into, and uh, my kids Snapchat me. That's about it. You're not an Instagram guy? I have an Instagram account. But I don't have a Jonathan Frakes Instagram account, and I think that may be the next uh, step for me because it's clearly a world that I mean, I always check everyone else, so I should probably participate. Gotta get your branding on. Get my branding on, right? <laughs> Especially with all those shows coming out. Need to be ready. Uh, yeah. So, that said, we are incredibly thankful and honored to have you on. Thanks again, man. Like I said, it's an honor and super happy to hear the insights. I know the listeners were also really stoked on it. So, We'll let you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. And thank you to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.